This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is The Bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My sponsors for season three of One for the Road are the amazing Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee, who are both in recovery and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. The boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol-free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear, you don't need alcohol to have a good time. So let's all rock sober and remember the good times with Rock Sober AF Drinks. My guest today on One for the Road is a TV and radio presenter and he's just landed his own show on BBC Radio One. Ladies and gentlemen, Dean McCulloch. So, Dean, welcome to my show, One for the Road. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I'm feeling good. Yes, I'm feeling good. Good lad. Have you been on the radio this morning? I have. I did my show on Radio 1, um, which I do every weekend from 10.30 till 1. So that was exciting. And today um, we were playing all dance music and I love a rave and I love a sesh. And it was brilliant because it felt like the whole country was like on it today. It was really exciting with, you know, it being Halloween weekend and whatever this weekend. I just feel like everybody's ready for it. It's payday. There's just a good vibe in the air. And then I get to come and talk to you. Oh, my God. I mean, if that's not going to cheer everyone up, I don't know what is. I mean, 
what a way to start. And I'm really interested in your career, right? Because I'll tell you about when I was 16, right? I was a DJ. And um, in, back in the day, there were these decks um, called Cytronic, Cytronic Thames. And they were a lot of money, like a real. And we got two massive speakers off Capital Radio. They used to have a fun bus that used to go around on tour. And these were huge speakers, about four foot high. And we had to hire tweeters that would sit on the top. And we would go to all the um, local areas. There was um, a disco called Cast Shorten Hall that everyone went to. And I was on the stage and I thought I was it. Do you know what I mean? And it was called, first of all, Disco Junction. And then it was called Cloud Nine. And we lasted about 18 months, mate, to be honest. (laughs) It was fun, though. Is that where you're from, Carshalton? Yeah. Ah, so I went to drama school in Epsom. Oh, did you? Yes. Yeah, I know Epsom really well, actually. Yeah, I went to drama school there when I was 17 in in, uh, in Epsom. And I remember getting on the train to go into Victoria and we used, it used to go through Carshalton. Yeah, that's it. What was that drama school called again? It was called Lane Theatre Arts. Yeah. The dance school. It's a very famous school. Lots of really brilliant people went there, and I had a, I had the best and the worst three years of my life in that, in that town, because um, I was seventeen. I just flew from, you know, I just got off the plane from Belfast. My family literally shipped me off as fast as they could, and I, you know, was the first person ever from Northern Ireland to get a scholarship to this school. It's like sixty-five thousand pound, I think it is. Yeah, a lot of money, um, to go there, and I wouldn't have been able to afford it if they if I hadn't got that scholarship but I was sort of really attracted to the bright lights of London in the West End and that's what I wanted to do and from the age of seven I wanted to go to drama school and wanted to live in London even though I'd never been so yeah just you saying that that just reminded me of, of that part of the country yeah Epsom that dance school I, I know it well because you see loads of students walking up and down a high street and they look like something from fame you know, with all their big woolly socks and everything. But there's also my niece, she went to the Brit school as well, which is in Croydon. And that's where I actually grew up in Croydon. So um, that was an experience. So what what um, happened after that when you went to the dance school? Did you qualify there? Yeah, so I, I did musical theatre there. And that's where I kind of really cut my teeth. In I've been doing doing musical theatre and acting since I was a kid, since I was seven, and that was definitely the only thing I wanted to do. There was there was no doubt in my mind from such a young age that I wanted to work in in show business and in in musical theatre and dance and and getting into that school was such an achievement. I mean, it was literally ten years of really hard work to get there. And then when I graduated from school, I didn't graduate with the job. Um, and at the time, I sort of felt like the world was against me because I was getting to the finals for these big West End shows and I couldn't quite work out why I just wasn't getting over the line you know it was between me and another person for a role or you know it was it was really to the bone and you know looking back now I know exactly why I didn't get any of those jobs and it was because the universe had a plan for me which was eventually to be a presenter but I needed to go through a bit of reality and I had to experience life in London grafting and hustling without that security of being in those tours and those shows in the West End. And that paid off. But I was very lucky. I mean, I, I did um, I did do a show in London. I did an operetta in London. Um, I worked on Britain's Got Talent, Got to Dance, 
the X Factor. Um, and I had a really brilliant time, you know, working on working on those shows as a dancer and as a choreographer. And I, I sort of now looking back on those years, we're talking like 2012, 13, 14, 15. I look back on those years and I can really see now how I was pulling in um, experience. Uh, you know, we took 30 dancers um, to Milan to work at the expo in 2020. And we were working with the government and I was assistant creative director. And it's, it's so weird because it's not a job that I ever thought that I would look back on as like a pivotal job, but I had so much fun doing that because we created all the choreography. We were working with, a, you know, a quite, quite a high profile client, David Cameron at the time. And I look back at it, it's such an achievement because I had all these dancers who I'm still really good friends with. And we, we produced something that went out and represented our country. We were representing Great Britain and you know, it's having that sense of achievement. I look back and I'm like, God, you know, you did that. And I was so young and I was absolutely winging it, you know, and doing those sorts of wee things. And then I was in a show at the time. I was doing Cinderella at the Richmond Theatre and a friend of mine who I met whilst I was choreographing on Got to Dance, which was a show on Sky. He said to me, I think that you should do this MC workshop at Sadler's Wells Theatre this weekend. And I was like, why would I want to be an MC? In my head, an MC was somebody that stood in the middle of like a boxing ring and got everybody like, like cheers, you know, like, I was like, why would I want to be an MC? And he was like, well, I just think that you'd be really good. I think, you know, we need someone like you. And I, I was like, well, let me think about it. Anyway, on my day off of this show, I traipsed from Richmond and I went into London and went to Sadler's Wells. And there was only like 10 of us that got picked to do this workshop. And I will never, ever forget the feeling when we were given all these different tasks to do the 10 of us. It was like a sort of like a, a masterclass, if you want, and being a presenter. And there were other people in the room just sort of on the sidelines, just chatting and being friendly with us. And we didn't really know who they were at the time. But I'll never forget the feeling of being sent out of the room with an event. I had to talk about this cabaret event and I had to come in and I had to present the cabaret event. I had to get you really excited about it. And I had to talk about people that were performing and, and I had to have a bit of crack with a crowd and I had to warm the room up. And it was something that I had never really thought was a, a skill. I never really saw it as a job. I thought it was just something that I'd always enjoyed doing. You know, if I was like singing at an open mic night in Belfast or doing a wee bit of drag for a pride event or whatever, I'd always chat to the crowd. And I did it and everybody in the room really clapped. Like they were really, really impressed. And I remember thinking, hmm, this is quite nice. Like all eyes are on me. I love the sound of my own voice, evidently. And people have always said that I've got too much to say, but yet here I am talking about something that I'm really passionate about, you know, cabaret, musical theatre and dance, something I really know loads about. And people are listening and they're hearing me and it's fun. Anyway, about six weeks later, the phone rings and the people that were on the sidelines were scouts from a big events company in London who produced the world's biggest dance event. And I had been there as a punter the year before and loved it this big exhibition and they've got dancers from America and choreographers and celebrities and it's just so exciting and interesting and they wanted me to host the stage there and when the phone rang and I was she was like hi Dean this is Georgina here from Move It we met at Sadler's Wells and we would like to offer you your own show and I was like me 
I was like, Georgina, I'm not sure. At the time I was like in the finals rounds for Dirty Dancing and Wicked the Musical and um, Legally Blonde the Musical. And I thought this is so far from what I really think I want to do right now. I says, can I think about it? And she was a bit like, there was just silence on the phone. I think she was expecting me to bite her hand off. And then I, and I said, yeah, I'll call you back. So I called her back. I rang my friend, Hakeem, who had wrote me into doing this in the first place. He was like, you have to take this. You don't understand. If you do this show, this is going to open up so many doors because you're going to be the boy that knows loads about dance. And I went, Hakeem, I want to be in Wicked. I want to be in We Were Rock You. And he was like, you can still do both. And I accepted the job and I went, I didn't get paid for it. It was like a trainee thing. I was really young. It was 2012 and it was the start of the most incredible journey. The most incredible experience of me communicating with people, making people happy, connecting worlds and really enjoying myself as a presenter and and Hakeem was absolutely right from doing that show the doors flung open I was hosting premieres red carpet events fashion shows the opening of a door I would be there within a suit with the mic in my hand interviewing people and just really enjoying what I was doing and I tried for years to pedal the musical theatre bike and I, I was great I mean I did I traveled the world and as a singer and did cruise ships and did the show in London and I had a really great time doing that but it was really interesting now looking back and seeing that those failures at the time weren't actual failures. It was just the universe said, we need to prepare you because you are going to be a presenter full time. It's going to be your job, but we need to put you through the mill a little bit and get you some experience of what the real world is like, because that will make you a better broadcaster. And here we are like 10 years later. And I, I can't quite believe what has happened, but it's weird because I always knew that this would happen. I always knew I would get a job at the BBC because I really, really wanted to work at Radio 1. And I always knew that I would have all this happiness and all this joy, but now I'm doing it. It's really, it's crazy looking back. Like it makes me feel a bit like choked up now because it means so much to me, you know? And you're you're 29, Dean. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? How much you've achieved in that time. So then, let's put the mockers on that, mate. Let's talk about <laughs> why you won the podcast. And you've got a massive big smile there. So where did booze play a part in this then? Do you know, I went travelling in 2017. Things were going really well presenting. I finally decided I, I really wanted to be a presenter. So I hung up my dancing shoes and I put all my eggs in one basket. And I was doing really well and I was really enjoying it for the first time I felt really comfortable in London and I ended up going traveling a friend of mine said she needed me to come to India to help her teach kids in this school so I did that's exactly what I did I put my backpack on and off I went and when I and it was really amazing how that happened as well because the universe just pulled everything together and off I went it was such an easy process I saved money and I went and um, I didn't think twice about the fact that I was doing really well in London as a presenter I just knew this is what my soul wanted me to do so when I was in India, I there was maybe like three weeks, four weeks, five weeks would pass. And I but I was having those deepest conversations with people. I was really seeing what the world is like. I was experiencing a high and a euphoria and a sense of self that I had ever experienced any time before in my life. And I was doing it all with no alcohol in my system. And it was weird because it was like a voice said to me, well, this is your life. 
this is you. And I knew that I would always give up drinking at some point. And it was because of those moments in India that, that made that happen. But that was in 2017. Then I went to Thailand and drank every day, as you do when you're in Thailand, went to the full moon party, got pissed every day by the pool at the hostel, whatever. I really, really enjoyed myself traveling. And But the more I looked to the universe, which I feel super connected to, and said, I need a sign here as to what my, my path in life is. And I and it, the universe was telling me it's it's presenting. You're going to go home and you're going to smash it as a presenter. And that's what you're going to do. And that's what I was being drawn to. And I was I was finding this this battle between like the the person I thought was me, which was this kind of like party starter, reckless, carefree kind of boy who was in a lot of pain and was dealing with a lot of trauma and was struggling massively. And I was at the time I was masking all of that with alcohol, but I didn't realize it was doing it because I had this relationship with the universe that was keeping me focused. So it was almost like one part of me knew that my destiny was, was a sober, clear life of success and happiness and abundance, which allowed me to be really reckless and to be really off the rails because I felt like I was in control. And I did all the travels and I had an amazing time and the seed was planted, but I didn't really give it much thought about not drinking again. And then I moved to Manchester, fell in love with a guy, moved here. And I had, you know, a, a whirlwind romance and success and work and was really happy. And drink was just part of my life. I work in entertainment. Everything, everything's around centered around alcohol life in general is centered around alcohol someone dies we drink someone gets married we drink someone is born we drink that's what we do and particularly in my industry it's it's sort of like you're a presenter you're a dj go and get drunk that's what we buzz off we buzz off you being drunk we buzz off you being high we just, you know what i mean it's that kind of world which i couldn't see at the time but i do now and then in the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic, I got through onto the breakfast show at the old station I used to work at. And that was the most stressful and most darkest, most scariest experience that I've ever had. Not doing the breakfast show, that was incredible. But what would happen when that breakfast show would finish was I would leave to a city with no one in it. There was nobody around. I felt really isolated and really lonely, but yet I had to get up every day and be there for someone else. And I had to get up every day and put a smile on my face. And I couldn't go in and say that I was really struggling because I'm supposed to be that light for someone else. So that tipped me in a real dark spell of despair and stress. And a lot of pain was coming up to the surface. So I would just drink. I would just drink and drink and drink. But I didn't realize how much I was drinking at the time. It's only now that I've I look back and think, how on earth did I manage to drink a liter bottle of vodka in one weekend? Like I would never, Dave, I would never have been able to, to do that ever. I was never a binge drinker when I was younger. I didn't go out to get fucked up. I went out to have a good time. But slowly that relationship with alcohol wrapped itself around my mental health and made me believe that this is what, and it, to be fair, it really was the only way that I could escape because we couldn't leave the fucking house. But the only way that I could escape all of this pain and all of this worry and all of this stress was to have a drink and it numbed the pain. And it did a really good job at it. Drink is a brilliant way for, for anybody to get, to get out of their head. But I realized that it was going in a way that I really didn't want it to go because professionally things were going really well the breakfast show was going really well and people were starting to see that this is what I did and I did it I was all right at my job 
So I could see that the trajectory was going that way, but I was going the complete opposite direction. And I'd already done my crazy years. I'd already done all of that in, in London, you know, when I had the world at my feet and no cares. Now that I had responsibility, there was more at stake. And I was worried about that. I thought, I'm going to end up losing everything here. I'm going to lose my mind because I already feel like I am. And I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my reputation and the respect of the people that rely on me to, to do this job. And it was getting really, really scary. I find myself having some seriously dark thoughts in that first lockdown. And like there was one day where I came home and I basically told my boss that I wasn't coming into work on Monday I told them all to go and fuck themselves because I was so stressed out with everything and my co-host sister had passed away and we were dealing with that it was awful and I came home and I closed all of my blinds in my apartment and I opened up a bottle of vodka and I poured myself a I did it almost like on autopilot I poured myself a, a glass of vodka and I drank it and for the first time ever in my life I knew that that drink took the edge off and that worried me because I'm a talker as you can probably tell and I can sort out everybody else's problems but for the first time the only thing that was going to help me was this drink and I drank and I drank and I drank I don't remember the rest of the weekend I didn't go into work on the Monday I was in a really bad way I had boys around my house I was doing all sorts it was really bad and that happened several times, several times, too many times that in, during that period that I, and remember, I don't see this as an issue at the time because I'm presenting Manchester Pride on the TV and I'm doing all of these, like, I'm on the forefront. I look fine, like Dean smashing it of everybody in the lockdown. Dean's doing really well, but inside I'm falling apart, like more than I've ever fell apart before. And, and on the 1st of September last year, 2020, I woke up and it was like the universe was able to get in and just said to me, it's time. Let's do a month. Let's do a month. I'd had conversations during the pandemic with some of my friends who were sober. They were planting little nuggets in my ears and they were starting, the cogs were starting to turn. And I realized that there was another life for me that didn't revolve around alcohol. And I certainly didn't need alcohol to dumb this pain anymore. So I gave up on the 1st of September. And I thought it would only last a month because I just needed to get clarity in order to get a job at Radio 1. I couldn't be seeing boys. I couldn't be going to the shop first thing in the morning to get a bottle of vodka. I couldn't, that I wasn't prepared to take that into the next chapter of my life. So I didn't. And a month has turned into a year. I wanted the job at Radio 1, didn't know how it was going to happen, but I made it happen. I got the job. I'm in the job now. I'm in therapy now. My relationships with my friends have really improved. My relationship with my mom has never been better. And my relationship with myself is on a really good, on a really good road. And I'm happier. Oh, Dean, I could listen to you all day because I, I could really relate to a lot of that. You know, like the vodka thing that um, you say about the weekend and it numbed the pain. I, I had trauma when I was a kid. Not in comparison to some people, but worse than others. You, you know, it's all relatable, isn't it? And, and I used to go home and literally pour the vodka in the glass, but it was never on a measure. It was just a gurk, 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 yeah. And then drink it like I've been playing football for two hours and I'd just down it, right? So I'd get that immediate hit. But just before I put the glass to my mouth, I'll go, 
see a later reality as if it was a big laugh do you know what i mean but that that was my catchphrase to myself i was on my own indoors see you later reality see you monday uh, my god mate monday when reality came back was about 50 times worse as you know than the friday i was drinking it but then i drank monday tuesday wednesday thursday and each day it's interesting what you say though about the universe started planting seeds in your head because i i believe in that myself i believe i'm exactly where i'm meant to be now and it's taken a lot of years mate a lot of years but when it's funny when i was drinking as well I always used to say this thing about booze. I could write a book about it. I know so much. And, you know, the work I do now is I'm using my learned experience, my knowledge, and I'm always educating myself. I love science behind drinking, you know, the neurotransmitters, all that side of it. I just get fascinated by that. But also talking to people like you that, you know, you're a young guy, handsome man with everything in his hands. You know, you say about your career from an early age where you was in this dance school in Epsom and everything's gone, but still it goes to show alcohol doesn't discriminate anyone, does it? And another thing, Dean, as well, you said, you know, my industry, that I don't talk to anyone that don't say that. <laughs> Honestly, it's you could be bloody anyone and they say, you know, in my industry, it's a drinking environment because it is wherever you look. Which is crazy. But do you know what I think as well? There's more and more people your age that are ditching the booze now. I spoke to a guy the other day on the podcast, Charlie, and he's 25. Uh, he doesn't drink anymore. Kate McNichol, she's 26. You're 29. Millie Gooch, she's 30. You know, there's a whole stream. My son doesn't drink anymore. Rarely, anyway. And do you think that's because you're more health conscious or you're more aware of what it can do? I think it's it's a bit of both, really. I'm not like a gym bunny and I don't necessarily eat incredibly well. I'm mindful of everything that I'm putting into my body, but I don't overanalyze everything. Of drinking, you need a thrill. So if you want to have the burger, eat the fucking burger. That's what I say. <laughs> it would be mad if I started to like, have salads and everything now and try and really get super super healthy because we all need something we all need something that is a little bit naughty that we know we shouldn't have and I'm sort of turning now to that really nice food and you know buying nice things for myself so and that is a bit of health being health conscious as well because I, I am aware that you know I am putting my body through a lot by having the thoughts of wanting to drink and needing something. My body's telling me I need, my mind's telling me that my body needs something, but it doesn't. So you're always in that state of why the fuck am I doing this? Because it's quite hard. It's quite painful um, after a while, but it is all because of awareness. Like, I think that, like, as I was saying to you, it, it was 2017 when I got the first whiff of sobriety. And it, and we're now in 2021. That's quite a long process for anybody to be toying with any kind of idea. Like if I want to do something, I do it. But this was such a slow burner, which means, which means that my whole world and my whole mind and everything environmentally around me was almost like configuring itself for whenever I knew that it was the right time. Mm -hmm. And this is the one thing that I'd say to anybody who's, who's considering giving up or you know cutting it out for a wee while is it has to be the right time 
but there is never a right time. <laughs> you know, the amount of people that say to me, oh, I'm going to give up this summer, but I'm going to, I'm going to go all out on August bank holiday because we always go to Creamfields and that's when we get on it. Or, oh, I couldn't give up drinking at Christmas or because of, you know, all of the, the red wine and all of that. Uh, or, you know, people always find an excuse and that's okay. Because if you're still finding those excuses, your brain just hasn't quite got to grips with what your soul wants because your soul always wants you to not drink. Mm -hmm. Your soul wants what's best for you. And I'm not a preacher at all, but what I can tell you categorically is that your soul does not want you to drink alcohol. Your soul sees a life for you, which is full of positivity, full of things that are only going to lift you up and bring you to your higher self and your the essence of you and that does not involve drugs alcohol any any vice at all it just involves you and the essence of you but your mind forever is going to try and tell you that you that you'll never give up you'll never give up you'll never give up you'll never give up I haven't now you know after a year of being sober my my mind is really kicking in now and really telling me that I need to drink again but I think for young people we're we're becoming a lot more aware of stuff with the you know with social media it's seen as this really horrible dark thing that causes issues for people and it does it's more times than not it's a really awful scary fucked up world but what it's done is it's allowed people to see that there was more outside their four walls and for my parents they they didn't have that they their life revolved around a nine to five life which was and if you heard about something which was a little bit above the norm it was seen as doolally it was seen as airy fairy it was seen as hippie somebody who was a vegetarian it was like oh why do you not eat meat for get a fucking life you know whereas now it's like oh you're a veggie whatever mm. and I think a lot of that has to do with social media and being connected and and young people wanting to know more about the world that we live in and us wanting a better life for ourselves now wanting a better life doesn't necessarily mean that you need to give up drink but for most of us who've cracked that, we can see that that drink has been holding us back. We could have been, I could have been here a lot sooner, but alcohol has stopped me from achieving my fullest potential. And let's be honest, when you can see somebody in your workplace, in your family, in your friendship group who is achieving their goals and saving money and looking sexy and whatever it is, you want a bit of that you want a bit of that. You can see that they're not out at the weekend, they're rocking up to work and they're looking fresh, they're really on it. And you're like, that looks, that looks pretty fucking good. Like, and then your soul starts to say, yeah, because you want that, you want that. And I think it's become a, it's become a phenomenon. Sobriety has become a phenomenon because it's such an easy thing to get your head around. It doesn't take a, it does, it's not rocket science. When you stop drinking, you only gain. When you stop drinking, everything improves it may take time and it's not easy but nothing bad can come from stopping drinking anybody can understand that anybody yeah I totally agree with you mate and it doesn't matter how old you are as well because I was 54 and I know someone who's given up drinking at 68 uh, and, and you know his marriage he's been married for a long long time he's in the states but his marriage, his family life has improved so unbelievably 
more, you know, and I'm an advocate for saying that, you know, you don't have to be, because it's easy to say, well, I've been doing it all my life, so what's the point now? It's easy to say that. But it's about the quality of your life, isn't it? You know, like for me, I'm 38. Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, I I gave up three years ago uh, at 54, right? And almost immediately, I noticed a big difference. And do you know what, Dean? I've had a personal trainer, right, for four months. And for the first time in over 25 years, I've hit under 17 stone today, mate. And I'm a lump. I'm a lump. But I haven't been in the 16 stone something since I was in my 20s. So giving up drinking, exercising, eating mindfully, you know, it doesn't mean I don't have the odd bit of birthday cake every now and again and you know, but everything yeah. moderation. And when we talk about drinking, that is something I could never bloody do is ever moderate ever. And I never will be able to either. Yeah. I think that when you tune in to the thought that you are on the right path and you're being rewarded by the universe, that becomes the new addiction. When you can see that you can have a thought, which is, I want to live in clarity, or I want to get a promotion at work, or I want to lose a couple of pounds, whatever it is, I want to get up in the morning. If you just think to yourself, I want to get up in the morning, and you do that over a period of time, and you start to say, oh, this is quite nice. This is The sun is looking sunnier. The trees are looking treesier. The wind is feeling windier. And suddenly I'm alive. Yeah. You're like, fuck, I'm now living life. Yeah. I'm no longer a, a human being. I'm a human doing. I'm doing it. Yeah. And that feels really exciting. But, and, and then you can't then, when, you, when you're in this space, you, you almost to go to the pub and have a couple of drinks and then not wake up that next day and to lie in your pit all day, it's so unappealing. Mm. It's so unappealing. It's not wrong and nobody would judge you for doing it. The only person that will judge you for it is yourself. But this becomes the new addiction. And when you get those rewards from the universe and when you take those steps forward and you can see that things are slowly, slowly improving and you're having these fucking breakthroughs, you sort of, the want to, to drink, to actually taste the alcohol really leaves you. Now, that's not to say that then your life is all daisies and sunshine and you can crack on. It's not. That's when the real work begins because finally you're giving yourself, and you'll know this, you're giving yourself the space to think, mm. you're giving yourself the space to breathe, and you're giving yourself the space to live. But with that living, comes a whole load of stuff a whole lot of stuff comes up to the surface stuff that you have been burying from the day that you became a conscious human being you're burying all of that stuff and it ain't going anywhere because it's flying around your head as raw data it's the the argument that you had with your mom when you were 11 and she wouldn't let you do something you hated her for it and you didn't forgive her for two years and you were 11 but those thoughts are still there and every now and again your mom pisses you off and it triggers that and you're like oh that's not going anywhere 
that is a experience it's a memory and it will trigger you and you've got to deal with it so now being a year and a bit sober i'm really starting to do that work now david i'm really it's not easy but the more things I'm filing away in my filing cabinet and the traumas that I'm taking out and dealing with and getting them away nice and neatly because they're not going to ever leave but I can pack them away nice and neatly and I can do that with a clear head it's hard work Mm. but that's what it is it's work and it's only for the greater good yeah and I I totally agree and I think that Worrying about all these buried thoughts shouldn't put you off from doing it because I believe, like you, um, there's a second phase of sobriety, which is where you're going now. And it took me a good couple of years for me to start thinking about all the stuff. You know, I've quite often said it's like having an old suitcase in the loft and you know it's up there and you can't even open the loft hatch. Do you know what I mean? But then you go up and you drag the case halfway across and then leave it there. And one day you'll open the lid and see what's in it. But with that, you need, as yourself, you, you're having therapy. You need support with that sometimes because it's all too much. And especially in the beginning. And for me, I concentrated on getting sober for quite a long time, you know, dealing with reality, dealing with the brown envelopes landing on the mat from the tax man dealing with arguments indoors where I'd normally self-medicate and clear off in my head all of a sudden you know I had to try and make sense of it but since being sober I'm I mean you probably agree it's that I'm far more logical now because I I kind of allow space to think about things and I've changed quite a lot in that area. You know, I would just like react straight away. Like I was really snappy because I, it interrupted the bubble of escapism I was in, you know, when I was drinking. And if anyone was to burst that bubble, oh my God, they were in for it. Was you like that? Yeah, I, it's weird because I wasn't really like an angry drunk, drunk or like an aggy kind of person which was why it was a real lesson for me to learn that alcohol wasn't good for me because I was able to have a really great, still good relationships. And I was fun to be around. And I wasn't, I, I suffered with hangovers, but I wasn't, I wasn't a big moper around or anything like that. Um, and, and what I'm trying to say is it didn't really affect my mental health day to day on a surface level. Right. But, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, when I, now that I don't drink and I'm still having to deal with all the same stuff and more because of my new job, it's like I've kind of got all of that experience of being a bit unkind to myself with my own thoughts that now that the going has got tough, I'm able to deal with it because I just keep thinking to myself, nothing can be as bad as if I was on a hangover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing in this situation is going to affect me more than that dread of anxiety of oh fuck what did I do last night and now I've got to go and host an event or now I've got to go and do a radio show like nothing is going to be that bad so as much as I'm saying that your thoughts come in and you've got stuff to deal with you you actually feel so much braver to deal with it I've got this new sense of I'm fucking going there. I'm getting that suitcase out today. It's happening today. And the reason being is because in my day-to-day life, I can handle small things now. All those little small things that you're talking about, Dave, that would have sent you over the edge, 
you're able to handle them. So you yeah. don't mind going back into the closet and reliving some shit stuff because day to day, you're fucking smashing it. You're really able to sustain relationships and, and promises and hold communications and your your general general day-to-day life becomes so exciting and interesting and fulfilled because you're in it that you're able to go back a wee bit and do that work that's certainly how i feel now Mm, i agree with you mate and uh i feel really excited about your journey forward actually because you know you talk so passionately about um being in tune with the universe and it's brought you here now and do you do you think that you could say to me now at 29, you're never, ever drinking ever again? Yes, yes. That's all I need to hear, mate. Because when I answer that to some people, they say, you don't know that. And do you know, spiritually, I do. I absolutely do. And that's because I've talked about this before. I feel like when my mum died, I had a visit from her a few weeks later. And it was really, it was in between my subconscious and a dream, but it was real. And I honestly believe that it was, I don't know, about five weeks after I just stopped out of nothing, you know, I just stopped drinking. I feel like she's had a real hand in that for me. And I feel her with me every day. And I know she's guiding me to where I am now. Uh, People might think it's a bit woo-woo, but it doesn't matter because that's what I believe in, you know. And, And I can honestly say this is where I'm meant to be. And it sounds like to me, it's where you're meant to be as well. And at 29, that's great. And, you know, I can't wind the clock back. It's all about what I do with my life now. And I've got a lot of work to do, mate. Believe me. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> so what, what, where do you see yourself in 10 years, Dean? Come on, tell me. Well, I would still like to be at Radio 1 in 10 years. I think I'm going to do a Scott Mills and chain myself to the desk. Yeah. Um, um, because he's been there a long time and I really look up to him. I think he's an incredible broadcaster and I would like to be there. I'd still like to be playing incredible music, champion new artists and getting representation in the media. And I would love to be making TV shows, amplifying voices, hosting entertainment shows, doing exactly what I was put on this planet to do, which I believe is to entertain on those shiny floor ITV, BBC, Channel 4 shows. But that's all what I call faff. That's all faff. I know that I'm going to have a really cool, fun life because that's the life that I want. And I'm really fucking grateful for it. And I ask for it every day that I can please, please, God willing, can I do this for the rest of my life? So I fully believe that that's going to happen. But that is all just faff. In 10 years time, at the age of 39, I would like to be happy. I would like to really have a good handle on all of my traumas and experiences that I have gone through as a child, as a teenager, a young adult, and as a 20-year-old. And I would like to think that by my 30s, I am a well-formed character who has made peace with all of that and can really help other people with their struggles and their traumas and with the, if that's to do with sobriety then fine if that's to do with mental health then fine if that's a bit of everything then fine you know it's a really really tough world out there for lgbt plus people and i've lived that for a long time and i really really hope that i can show young people who are coming up the ranks when i'm 39 and maybe they're like 19 29 that i can say you can do this you've just got to stay focused because i want to be successful 
to show that that is a real possibility. And yeah, I want to live in a gorgeous big house and I want a husband who is six foot and above, who's got, um, who's extremely well endowed um, and has a really nice bank card as well that I can use for us to go on nice holidays. And this is all just material things. <laughs> but I, I want to like, really... Yeah, I've got a big house and I'm six foot plus and I'm extremely well endowed. <laughs> Um, maybe I'm a little bit too old, eh? <laughs> what did your wife say? Oh, she'd be all right. So, <laughs> so in 10 years' time, Dean, it'd be, this is my husband, Dave. And I'd be, hello, dearie. You know, all lobbled over. But anyway, that, you know, we can make a whole new podcast on that. Yes, we Leave can. Me. But do you know what, Dean? Seriously, though, mate, um, talking to you, you might be a great singer, presenter, dancer, artist, and like, but I'll tell you what, and I mean this as well, you make me feel good, mate. There's something about you that your aura, the way you speak, makes me feel genuinely oh, really, really good. And I'm sure people listening to this podcast will come off this and go, what an absolute lovely bloke Dave is. And as for Dean... No. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> no, seriously, mate, you are an absolute gem of a man. And I've really loved having you on today. And I think you're so wise for your age and, and you've got a lovely way. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I, I feel genuinely excited about your future. And I'm going to be keeping my eye on you. Trust me. Please, please. And I I'm, I just want to say that because I'm not sure whether you get enough praise for it. And I'm, I know your head's big enough, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think the work that you do, because it is work and people might just take a look at Instagram and listen to podcasts and think, oh, that's just, that's just a bit of noise. That is, that's work and that comes from your heart and it's something that you wake up and you think about and it's their lives out there that you want to change because I can feel that from you and I, I just want you to keep going because what you're doing for addicts and for alcoholics and for the sober curious and the sober and everyone else in between is really 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 good work and um and thank you oh that's lovely dean thank you mate that's a really lovely thing to say and i appreciate that oh what a lovely ending eh hey what a happy ending <laughs> always <laughs> <laughs> all right dean mate um thank you so much and it's been great chatting to you and i hope to meet you one day Yes, please, mate. Anytime you want to come to any gigs in London, you want to bring that missus or your son or whatever, you just yes, let sir. Thank you so much, Dean. Speak soon, mate. See, mate. You have a lovely weekend now. Bye, mate. Bye. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. And now you can subscribe to my new platform on Patreon, where you can watch the live unedited video recordings and you also get two bonus podcasts per month. The link is on my show notes. You can also find me on Instagram at SoberDave. And please don't forget to subscribe. And if you get a chance, please leave a review. Until then, have a great week and see you next time.